Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Karen Everett is one of the world's leading documentary story consultants, as well as an award-winning documentary filmmaker. As the founder of New Doc Editing, LLC, she's helped hundreds of filmmakers structure transformational documentaries for PBS, HBO, Sundance, and other top film festivals. Her business, New Doc Editing, provides directors with talented documentary editors, as well as story consultants. Karen is the author of the book, Documentary Editing, and has directed and produced six of her own documentaries, including the award-winning PBS biography, I Shall Not Be Removed, The Life of Marlon Riggs, and American Visionary, The Story of Barbara Marks Hubbard. She can be reached through her email, karen at newdocediting.com. And Carol, I understand that Karen has edited many of your fiscally sponsored films. Yeah, Claire, Karen's done an excellent job for our filmmakers, and we thank you so much, Karen, for joining us today. That's great to be here. Thank you, Claire and Carol, for having me on. Well, we're going to cover a lot of things today. We want to cover how documentaries are scripted in the edit room, why character-driven docs are so popular, and some of the biggest mistakes that filmmakers make. So to get started, I thought... um, that I know you've helped hundreds of filmmakers structure their films. So let's start with some of those success stories. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I just, because your, your, biz, your nonprofit, Carol, is called From the Heart Productions, I'm going to start by saying how much I adore you and love you. And, and one oh. of the success stories is, is, is my own film, which I don't need to get into, but you, you did help me raise $125,000 for that film. You were my ardent cheerleader uh, the whole way, and I am so grateful for your help. And uh, I, I just want to tell you I love you. Oh, how sweet of you, Carrie, because thank you very much. I know that. I remember I would just take the phone out of the office to the porch so I could get really outside because I had to focus. There, were, You wanted 100000 and we knew that it was uh, what you needed, and the question was how to get there. And what's so good about working with you is that you listened very carefully. You heard everything I said and suggested, and the next call we would have, you would have done it. And we, we were moving <laughs> forward at rapid speed. So thank you for that. We did have a lot of fun raising that money. From my side, I was so proud of you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And some of the, I guess some of the success stories, um, uh, let me just mention a couple of films um, and filmmakers that I've met through you. Um, Bonnie Rich, um, whose personal documentary, Life is Rich, was just nominated for an audience award and Leanne Dance's film uh, My Dear Children about Jewish pogroms was sold to American Public Television 
Um, currently oh, helping Anita Casalena. Yep. Um, Anita's making a promising documentary about racial healing circles. And, you know, I was just, um, I'm, I'm getting ready to give my website a big facelift. So I was going through, uh, I don't know, over 200 films that I've worked on in the last 10 years. Um, and I counted 37 documentaries that had more had won more than one award. So 37 award-winning documentaries. One was one won an Emmy. Two were nominated for an Emmy. And I want to focus just for a second on one of those Emmy-nominated films. Um, it was made by director Steve Pressman. He took my class uh, directing the character-driven documentary, which I taught at the San Francisco Film Institute for several society for several years. And he made a film about an American Jewish couple in the 1940s who went about trying to save children uh, at risk under the Nazi occupation. And it's called 50 Children, the Rescue Mission of Mr. and Mrs. Krauss. And we worked hard to make shape that into a dramatic three-act structure. And the reason this film is a success story to me is um, not only did it air on HBO, which, was, which is hard to do and was wonderful, but that film, as you can probably tell from the title, is a terrific example of the kind of inspiring and solution-oriented documentaries that I think we're all so hungry for these days. Uh, yes, and solution-oriented. I, I was very proud of it. Oh, yes. solution-oriented is the right word because I've watched so many docs, Karen. The worst thing I, that happens to me is when I watch a documentary and I and it's over and I'm totally depressed and I'm thinking, oh my God, how are we ever going to solve this problem? You know, and I feel. Uh, sad and I don't want to feel that way I want to feel okay I I see the problem and I see the solution yeah yeah I I uh in 2014 I sort of started actually when I left teaching the graduate school of journalism at UC Berkeley um in 2012 part of the reason I left to start my own consulting business I mean it was the top documentary program in the country but the whole focus on journalism then and, and then and, and to some degree certainly now is is on what's not working and so I started blogging about a new a, the need for a new ki- kind of documentary that not only pointed out what wasn't working and left us feeling depleted at the end and I think we needed those for a while to wake up but a genre of films that uh, I call transformational documentaries, but they're solution-oriented films that don't shy away from social issues and ultimately leave viewers feeling optimistic. And I recently noticed uh, in the um, uh, the um, NEA's 2017 report from their Documentary Sustainability Summit, they're calling for more open and solution-oriented approaches to filmmaking. Uh, so so it's, I think we're we're waking up to that need. It's very exciting. Yeah, that's yeah. yes, that is exciting because then you you feel like you're part of a group uh, that uh, the, all those people who have seen it there is hope because if everybody chips in and does whatever they're told or suggested, then that you feel like you're doing your part. I like that. Yeah, and a lot of the, the those films like The Cove and um, An Inconvenient Truth, Waiting for Superman, they end with a call to action, and you know a lot of directors might feel like, well, I don't want to tell my viewer how to act, but people, uh, you, you don't have to do that. You can invite, and people do appreciate having, especially with a social issue documentary, some suggestion of what to do. 
uh, a lot of the films that you, the filmmakers, the directors you've um, referred me to, they they do spend more screen time on the solution than the problem. And I think we both have that sensibility of kind of guiding them to do that. I remember um, Kathy Sparnan's film Voices of Grief, uh, which is about death and dying and grieving. And it doesn't wallow in the problem of, you know, we live in a culture where people, you, you're not allowed enough time to grieve. Um, the, the, that film offers fresh perspectives on the many ways we can, this is actually right off their website, we can navigate successfully through great grief. Um, yes. So they also thinking of Anita Castellina's film about racial healing circles. It's going, you know, it's, we're, we're working on it now. She's in production. It spends more time uh, focusing on healing from racism than suffering from racism. Um, and again, it's not to undermine the problem, but to give people hope that there's something we can do about these problems. Absolutely so. Right. Yes, this is yeah. great. And and you chosen all of those people are lovely to work with. So I'm very glad that they're you helping them with their films. They're all important. Thank aren't you. They? Yeah. They really are. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, let's get back to um let's talk about what's one of the biggest mistakes that filmmakers make when what that you see from your angle. <laughs> well, it's the, the biggest mistake is that directors overshoot because they're not clear on their vision and the structure. And I, I know I've fallen into this on at least two of my documentaries, uh, which have more than 200 hours of footage each. And the problem is when you have that much footage and, and, and shooting is exciting and fun and filmmakers have a lot of energy at that stage, but then you've got to spend weeks and usually months and sometimes years logging all that footage. And that can bring the whole, endeavor to a standstill you lose sight of the film you wanted to make um filmmakers sometimes become stuck uh you know it's often a stage at which filmmakers seek me out for story consulting because they've lost perspective and the solution to that problem is first to really see your film as clearly as possible before you shoot and then shoot judiciously and when i was teaching at, at UC Berkeley at uh, the Graduate School of Journalism, the director of the program there, John Else, gave the, uh, the, we usually had 10 students at a time, he gave them 10 days of shooting for a 24-minute film. And that discipline forced them to think carefully about, you know, what scenes do I need? Um, and sort of, it was like an antidote to this tendency to use, he, he had the phrase, don't use the camera like a fire hose <laughs> in hopes of capturing something <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> this is great. So, this is great. Yeah. You know, Karen, back in the uh, time when video was really starting to take off, maybe back at to around the year 1999-2000, I was very close to Kodak because I sold uh, raw stock, you know, short ends. And one of the Kodak men told me, he said, you know, the biggest problem, Carol, they're going to have is that they think they, they're going to move from shooting three to one, four to one ratio with film because of the cost. Uh-huh. Now they're going to be shooting 20 to 30 to one. And, oh, and, yeah, and this is what's going to happen. The biggest problem is going to be in the editing room. And that's exactly what you're saying. 18 years later, we're looking at the problem. You're exactly right. 
and you know what what do you do if you already have that uh 200 hours you know yes. it, 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 how do you how do you get through that um and 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 that's you know part of the reason editing is the most expensive part of documentary filmmaking is because it it takes so long um so we've developed a program called accelerated post that helps solve that problem of taking so long to get through editing and the first thing we do is help filmmakers get that whatever they've shot 80 hours 200 hours down to 30 hours of their best footage and they turn that over to our editor and we our sort of claim to fame is that we can edit a film in 10 weeks and you know it used to take typically it can take six to six to 12 months to edit a feature documentary. Um, so, you know, we, we, we help filmmakers figure out how to get through all that footage and log it quickly. Um, a big part of that is just being very clear on the criteria uh, for you select. Um, it's yes. either got to be plot, plot based or, um, you know, hit one of the big themes uh, if you're making an essay style film. Um, right. So, yeah. So, I do think that is it goes back to that biggest problem of overshooting. Overshooting. So that's one of the biggest mistakes they make. Uh, and so you're saying that to really get clear, see the film clearly, and then go shoot. Know what you want and aim for that and, and try to get it within a certain amount of footage so that you can log it all and have a good a short edit, not be in there forever, Right. Exactly. And when I help filmmakers in pre-production or production stage, um, a lot of our focus is on, uh, okay, figuring out what, what is what is the important juice uh, that you want to contribute to a, a certain conversation, and what's the best way to uh, capture that on camera? Is it through a story? a story being defined like screenwriters define it as a character who's on a quest to achieve something. Um, and those kinds of documentaries are very popular these days, or is it more of an essay doc, meaning it's structured around ideas? And if so, um, who's going to articulate those ideas? And, and also how can you, how can you bring little elements of story into what could be a dry talking head topic driven film? And there sort of our um, claim to fame, <laughs> I guess, as a business is uh, goes back to our tagline, which is keeping viewers glued to the screen. And the way to do that, uh, if, especially if you're, well, number one would be making a character-driven film. But if that's not the kind of film you want to make, you can still take little bits of um, dramatic principles and like Michael Moore does often, include little character anecdotes to bring emotion into your film and to illustrate the ideas that you're explaining. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. Um, I know you've taught a lot of sold-out classes on character-driven documentaries. So what distinguishes these kinds of documentaries from others, and why are are they so popular, Karen? Uh, um Good questions, and uh, I I love talking about this because uh, character-driven films became documentaries became popular. Gosh, 
it's almost 30 years now, 1994 was Hoop Dreams, one of the first documentaries about following two kids on a, a, a dream to become all, uh, basketball, professional basketball players. It was one of the first docs to make money at theaters. And these days, character-driven docs are winning awards at festivals, they're getting picked up for broadcasts, and what you asked what distinguishes them, um, it's not only that they have strong characters, but Technically speaking, there's at least one character who is a protagonist, um, meaning they're after something. So I encourage filmmakers to think like screenwriter, screenwriters and to um, paraphrase one of the great screenwriting gurus, Sid Fields. Uh, he says, a story is about someone who wants something badly, and that something has to be difficult to get or achieve. So character-driven films are they're sort of inherently interesting because we all relate to the concept of desire, you know, whether it's desire for love or for money or financial security or for health, desire for justice. And so when we see someone on an endeavor for something worthy in the face of obstacles, we are immediately drawn in, we're empathetic, and... I encourage filmmakers to uh, follow a, a classic dramatic structure, the three-act structure. Character-driven uh-huh. documentaries um, can, can give a lot of thanks to Aristotle, who designed this with an uncanny understanding of human emotion. Um, and d- just, just very briefly, to get a little bit into the three-act structure, um, the first quarter of the film in Act One, um, you introduce us to the characters and launch the protagonist's quest, usually with something called an inciting incident. So an example might be um, a medical diagnosis, Um, thinking of a film called uh, Sexy Crazy Cancer. I think I got that right. So this woman, young woman, is is diagnosed with liver cancer, and she sets out on a quest to heal. Um, And then the second act, which is usually the longest, presents, we see that that protagonist going after their goal, and that's maybe 60% of the film where they face obstacles. Uh, and then the shortest act, the third act, calls for some kind of supreme effort um, where we find out if they reach their goal or not. Uh, so that three-act structure uh, is very, it's a template, but it's very flexible. And it can be modified um, to documentaries. Uh, you know, it's great to be a screenwriter and have the flexibility to make things. Uh, but it takes a certain, um, I've developed certain tactics to help filmmakers, uh, for example, create an inciting incident. So this is, again, the, the event that launches the protagonist's goal. One of the films I worked on a couple years ago, um, it, was, it was about a, an activist in a Ukrainian uh, young man who was an activist investigating a cover-up at Chernobyl, the nuclear explosion. And uh, he, um, the, the filmmaker lacked an inciting incident. So we went back and found one. And usually by the time documentary filmmakers find a film, the inciting incident has already happened and nobody filmed it. And mm-hmm. Hollywood has this rule that this is such an important dramatic device it's a catalyst event that it has to appear unfold on camera. So anyway, we figured out how to do that, and uh, the film ended up winning the grand jury prize 
at Sundance for World World Documentaries, and Variety Magazine uh, called the um, uh, Editing Superb, and I'd like to bring that up as just an example of how we can adapt uh, screenwriting principles to documentaries and make them more watchable. So that's oh, I just think- a character driven. That is so important. Thank you very much. You've outlined it so carefully. You know, um, one of my favorite uh, screenwriters is Blake Snyder, and there's his book, Save the Cat. And um, what he says in his book is that unbeknownst to all of us moviegoers, we are programmed. If we don't get that exciting incident, inciting incident within the first five minutes, there's something off. And if if something doesn't happen at 20 minutes, and uh, usually that's when the love interest comes up, and 45 minutes is the change. There's a second half of the film that's totally different than the first. If these things, uh, plus more in his uh, book, don't happen, you start to squirm in your seat saying there's something wrong. I don't know if I like this film or not, because you are used to all of these things. So to bring that to the documentaries will uh, make so much sense to me, Karen. Absolutely. What does Save the Cat refer to, his title? How, how does that, uh, do you, do you well, recall? It's about the character. It's the character, uh-huh. Save the Cat, okay. because he he starts off and says that you can uh, judge the character of the film. Uh, you should be able to get the character of your uh, well. It, it could be, it's your the man you're going to follow in the film. All right, you should be able to get that person's character within the first two or three minutes. Uh, it's, it could be the protagonist because he said it like in HUD. All you have to do is take a look at the still shot uh, of the uh, actor that was playing HUD, and uh, you've got it. You know what that character is going to be. And he gave us an incident in a, um, a film where De Niro is a um, cop, and he is – uh, all these uh, thieves are coming to a, a meeting, but they don't know that the police is, are the ones who set the meeting up. So they're all showing up, and this man walked with his son. And when he and when De Niro saw him, he flashed his badge and said, "I'll catch you another day." And the man grabbed his son and left. So we knew immediately this is a heartfelt man. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. In in that case, he's the he's the uh, is he the cat or is I'm thinking of the uh, no cat cat short for character. Okay, save the character. It's reminding me, and maybe this is where it came from. There's uh, some famous comedian whose name I don't remember has said. I'm paraphrasing. Act one is about chasing your character up a tree. Act two is about getting them out on a limb. Yes. <laughs> and act yes. three is about saving them before the tree branch breaks. So maybe that's, that's, that's where a, that came that's, from. That's a cat. Uh, exactly. That's right. But uh, it's a catchy title, and everybody says, what does that mean? And, uh, and when you read the book, you know how important timing is because we are subconsciously programmed. And the thought of bringing all that programming over to docs, even if it is a subtle 
shift or a subtle change is so important. And also, to uh, character development has to be early on because that's how I decide if I want to watch 90 Minutes uh, or not. Do I like the person? Who is this person? So you yeah. have a lot to do in that editing room, I'm telling you. <laughs> well, while we're on screenwriting books, I want to mention, too, very quickly that are written for, for of course, uh, fiction filmmakers, but can be, um, I mean, we, we specialize in developing ways to adapt this to documentary filmmakers. And if you read these books, I think you'll get some ideas. One is um, Dara Marks's book, Inside Story, which really has to do with character transformation. Um, not all documentaries have a character who go, undergoes some kind of personality change, but often there's a, a change in belief um, and, and well, and on another show, I'll go into the four steps of character transformation. Robert okay. McKee's book, Story, is a classic. Um, yeah. I took a seminar from him, and it really helped me develop sort of my, my work in, in applying screenwriting techniques to doc, for documentary filmmakers. Oh, I'm sure it did. He's brilliant. I, I enjoyed his book. You're right. Well, okay, so character-driven are really getting hot. Now, um, they say that documentaries are scripted in the edit room. So walk me through some of the stages of post-production, please. Mm. Well, films that tend to be more about ideas rather than characters on a quest, I, I call them essay-style films, um, they will often start with a paper edit or a script. And, and let me just say, I've, I've already, I've left out the logging stage, which is very important. And the, and the most important thing I'll say about logging is know what criteria you are using to, sit, to, to give a thumbs up or thumbs down to a certain soundbite or scene or shot. Um, because if you don't log well, you're going to spend forever in the edit room. Okay, so so paper edit, that basically means you're cutting up your transcripts and coming up with a, a, a script on paper. Not always used. The most, um, and, and then there's basically four cuts. The first cut is the assembly cut. That's a term not a lot of people are, are familiar with. Um, we're all familiar with a rough cut. But the assembly cut is your first sort of uh, whack at structure. It's usually 40% of the total film's total running time. So if, if you know if you're eventually making a 100-minute film, the assembly cut might be 140 minutes. It's it's blocky. It's ugly. Uh, you don't show it to anybody outside the film's family. And really, the, the purpose of the assembly cut is to figure out a do we have a film here, and b what characters do we want to keep or cut. What, you know, what, what experts do we want to keep or cut? Um, we don't want any duplicates. And, and what themes do we focus on? And then the second stage is rough cut. It's about 10% 10, 10 of the final film. A lot of the uh, heavy structural lifting gets done here. Um, and th then you have the fine cut, which is maybe 3% of the final film where you're finessing scenes, and then locked picture. One of the questions I get asked often is, what's the difference between an assembly cut and a rough cut? Uh, and I came up with a metaphor I, I want to share briefly. And maybe you'll appreciate this since you live on the beach. Um, so imagine making pebble art. Uh, pebble art is like an image, right, assembled from all those 
small, smooth rocks you find on a beach. So mm-hmm. edit, editing an assembly cut is like walking along the beach and collecting the prettiest pebbles you find in the sand. So from, uh, if, if, for example, if you give us 30 hours of footage in our assembly cut, we'll collect the best 100 minutes of footage. Um, and then editing a rough cut involves arranging those pebbles into some kind of uh, pretty preliminary design or structure. Um, both, you know, normally both those cuts can take months to edit, but, but we accelerate the process. That is phenomenal. That's wonderful. So when, you. what do you do with people who live out of town and want to work with you? Can you, can you do this via, via electronically, Skype, or some way where you send the files back and forth and work together? Absolutely. Uh, so and let me just clarify, New Doc Editing, uh, we offer two services. One is story consulting, um, and that's usually... Uh, I'm the story consultant weighing in on cuts. So, right, for example, just yesterday we received a, uh, a rough cut from a filmmaker in Northampton, Massachusetts, um, and I asked for a low-res QuickTime file to download quickly so I can scrub back and forth through it. Um, so most of uh, our work, both as story consultants and editors, is done remotely, uh, virtually. Um, so when it comes to editing, um, we ask directors to ship us their drive with their project and footage. Um, and then together we will collaborate to create uh, these cuts. Usually there's two rough cuts. And um, the editor will send the cut to me and the director, and if they're working with an, uh, you know, somebody else on their editorial team, we'll all review that and we'll get together on the phone and discuss uh, what's working because that's really important to know so you don't change mm-hmm. it. Um, and then we set about solving problems. And then by the end of those, uh, those sessions, we come up with a prioritized list of editorial tasks for the next cut. So it works really well remotely. Um, occasionally when filmmakers in the, are in the Bay Area, um, I will meet in, pers- with, in person with them. I'm hoping to meet with Anita in the next couple weeks. Um, but this, this guy that sent me the rough cut yesterday he said, how important is it to meet in person? And I said, you know, to be <laughs> honest, <laughs> it, it can help um, emotionally if you're needing support to just, you know, look in somebody's eyes. And, and I do kind of, like you, I think um, one of my, the ways I contribute is, is as a, a, an encouraging coach. Um, but in terms of intellectually figuring out how to make the film work, I find the phone is better because people focus better. Um, oh, how interesting. So anyway. Yes. Yeah. Well, usually that's very true. When you get people on the phone, you have an outline, you go through the outline, cover anything else that comes up, and that's it. You're finished. Mm-hmm. But in person, it, it takes longer, and you get off track a lot, don't you? That's true. It's true. It's true. I so hadn't thought about it. It's usually not- Right, and it's not usually recorded, like this conversation is being recorded, and our consultations are recorded, so you can go back and listen to them. Oh, how lovely. Yes, that would support the filmmaker for what did, what did she say. And you don't have to take notes then because they know they can go back. It's all there. And they yes, can have their family and exactly. friends and crew listen to it. Yes, that's great. Yeah, they're more, well, more present. So you do story consulting and editing. Well, what 
about, uh, I have a filmmaker that is a first-time filmmaker, and he made a film, and um, and it's good. It's very good for a first-time filmmaker, I think. And the subject matter is most important. But now what we need is other people, of, of filmmakers or editors, to look at it and say, you could make this film better by doing X, Y, and Z. Do you, does your company do that? Absolutely. That's the gist of story consulting. So this filmmaker you're talking about, oh. is he editing his own film? Yes, this is uh, okay. true. See, he shot it, he's editing it, and he's never done it before. So I And I just adore him, and, and the subject matter is most important. So the, I think that a good consultation or a good input could help him take it from where it is now to two or three times better. I'm, you know, I'm, when I first started my business, I, uh, I knew the value of story consulting from having needed it myself as a filmmaker. And I don't know about this uh, filmmaker you're talking about, but my guess is that like most filmmakers, at least one of his biggest problems is fundraising and hiring, a, you know, editing, editing the film yourself is a great way to save money. And hiring yeah. a story consultant to help you edit uh, is very important. Um, I, I still hire st- story consultants to help me because we lose perspective. Um, so, yeah. Wow, you do. Good for you. I do. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you. Okay, so that would be part of the story consultant. Even though you've got it finished, you, uh, you really can get it uh, reviewed by a story consultant and get some input for improving it. That's great. And they will get um, at least, at least, uh, you know, seven pages of written notes, which are, uh, you know, there's usually six to eight sort of headline comments about big issues like structure and then dozens of detailed comments that are time code specific. Uh, And then I also offer a a story consulting package where um, you get back a QuickTime file of your own film. And in the upper right-hand corner, you can see me um, commenting on the the film um, scene by scene, sometimes shot by shot. So you're getting sort of, you know, my first look at this film and the the first look only happens once and that's what your viewers are going to get. So I'm giving feedback about not only what's working and what's got me on the edge of the seat, but where I'm confused or where I'm bored. Um, and then, you know, we set about solving those problems. It's, it's all solvable. So oh, that's wonderful. very detailed feedback. Okay, yeah. great. Well, is this outlined on your website? Uh, pardon me? Do, is this uh, outlined I... on the website? Uh-huh. Yes. Yes, okay, absolutely. <clears throat> All right, then. Great, and thanks. So, I guess <sighs> I should mention the website. <laughs> it's uh, yes. It's it's newdocediting.com. So new n e w, doc d o c, editing.com. So let's. So the editing is usually the most expensive part of the documentary, uh, because it takes so long. Is that why? Yeah, and because a lot of people try to save money by hiring editors that, well, that really 
aren't experienced and don't know how to tell a story, you know, since the, the nonlinear editing programs came out, and this it t- tells people how old I am probably. Are you still there? Can you hear me? <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> <We can. laughs> so I'm, 50, I'm 57. I don't, I don't mind telling people. Anyway, <clears throat> anybody these days who can figure out how to operate Premiere or Final Cut Pro can call themselves an editor. And, you know, I, I guess you, you get what you pay for, and if you're paying – one or two or 2,500 a week for an editor uh, and it's taking a long time, you probably have an editor who doesn't have a lot of experience with feature documentaries and hasn't won awards and doesn't really know how to tell a story. So uh, really a good way to save money in editing is to hire an editor uh, who, who knows what they're doing. <laughs> when people hire our editors, and I, I'm not coy about prices it's three thousand a week they also get me as a story consultant for free um and so you know can do the math we we can finish the film in 10 weeks um wow that is fast it is and 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 it's you know if you don't have thirty thousand dollars we have ways to to work with you so anyway i just you know i Sure, I want to market my business, but I also, and this is one thing I learned from you, Carol, <laughs> I want to be of service to people. I want to help solve problems. And uh, I remember just an early phone call we had probably six years ago when I was trying to figure out my next film. And you were telling me about reaching some milestone birthday and about, uh, I don't know if you remember this, about how it became so clear to you that what was important was being of service to filmmakers. And about that time in my life and business, I kind of switched from, oh, I have to be the greatest and being significant-oriented to being contribution-oriented. Yes, we, we still need to be good at what we do, but for me the goal changed to when I finished a story consultation, I want to hear, oh, my God, this is so helpful. Thank you. Um, oh. And I do often, and it makes my day, and I'm sure you know that feeling. Oh, yes, that's the best. That's it. That's what we're here for, I really believe. We're here to support and nurture each other. And, uh, and But you still have to eat. <laughs> you have to have a car yes. and all of these things, so it has to come with a, a balancing situation. But... but working in in a balance in your life like that. We're changing the whole attitude, moving over to the creative consciousness is what you've done. And that's where you can tap into the field, get your information, and help people and enjoy your life. So bravo, Karen. Great move, I think. (laughs) That's what it's all about. Tap into the field, baby. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you want to do. Yes, definitely. Okay. I wanted to um, – sorry, you're probably going to prompt no. me to do this right now. Okay, go ahead. Well, well I wanted to offer um, anybody listening to this um, to get a, a free copy of my book, Documentary Editing, and the way to do that um, – and it's a great way to sort of see if, you know, see if you want to work with me, but also just get a lot of tips about editing that we don't have time to discuss. Go to my website, newdocediting.com. Um, in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a place to put your name and email. 
And I'll send you an electronic ver- – actually, you'll get automatically an electronic version of my book, uh, which is 189 pages, has been um, critically acclaimed by Harvard film professor, and lots of people have told me it's helpful. You'll also be on my mailing list. Occasionally I send out um, a newsletter about trends in documentary filmmaking and tips. Um, also, if you don't mind, I'll just uh, give people my email in case you want to reach out for a free story consultation. Oh, uh, it's Karen. Karen, K-A-R-E-N, at newdocediting.com. Carol, thank you so, so much for this opportunity uh, to talk about making inspiring films. And uh, I'm curious, what have you seen? What have you seen lately that has inspired you? Did you see RGB? I missed I haven't seen that. I'd like to go see him on the big screen. But I I did see... um, Mr. Rogers, I love that. Oh, I've heard that's a great film. I haven't seen it yet. Yes, and, um, well, Faces, Places. Uh Uh-huh, artists. That was the most soul-touching, most caring. Uh, Agnes is such an artist, and we're so lucky to have her in this world. Um, she's in a mid eighties or something, and she's driving around in this van, making, putting all these pictures on walls, and it's just so full of heart. I love that one. Aww. So, how about you? What have you seen that well, you like? Well, I, I, those two you mentioned are on the top of my list right now. <laughs> Faces, places, and uh, the Mister Rogers one. I think what um, what really touched me about RGB that I've heard about Mister Rogers. <clears throat> is that um, th- first of all they they're they're without shying away from problems they are inspiring films and they also uh, have a quality of uh, I, I I've been blogging recently about integral filmmaking and mm-hmm. and the sort of short short definition of that is documentaries that see things from multiple perspectives and ultimately can sort of reach across the aisle and heal the polarization that's going on, uh, which, which is, is, is not just because we have Donald Trump as president. It's partly due to technology where we get to curate our own news feeds. And I, I recently started, um, uh, I, I, I now read CNN and Fox News to kind of keep my finger on the pulse. Um, but the, the thing about, um, I've heard this about Mr. Rogers and also RGB, is they, okay, so for example, um, Ginsburg has, while she's moved progressively to the left on the Supreme Court bench, she has deepened her friendship with uh, uh, Justice Anton Scalia, who's very conservative. Over 35 years, they've deepened this friendship. Um, that's that's touching to me. and And I think films that show um, that in some ways we we live in different worldviews, we value different things. But if we can see, you know, if we're making a documentary about, say, climate change, if you use language that's not just about sustainability, but, um, you know, allow somebody to speak about being steward over the creator's uh, creations, that's going to speak to somebody that... um, it, it, it probably doesn't identify themselves maybe as 
progressive or liberal. Uh, so anyway, I I could go on, but I love that you that you picked out those films and. Um, my next blog is going to be about this, so uh, stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good, good. And if you want a good foreign film that really makes yeah. you think and take a look at the justice system, I think it's called Three Murders. It's a Japanese film um, about uh, a murderer and the uh, how the uh, he is handled in the justice system in Japan, which is very similar to ours. Uh, Huh. It's an incredibly well-made film. It may be up for some awards, I, I would think. Did you see it in the theaters? Yeah, yeah. We have up here okay. Oxnard Film Society, and George runs it, and he gets us films from all over the world. And every Monday in the summertime, we get a film a week, and it's stupendous. You get to see films that you would probably have to get on Amazon or Netflix but we see them in the theater with the perfect sound and beautifully screened. And probably with some of the same people. So it sounds like a, a source of community. Yes. Every week you, you, you run into some of the same people. That's great. Oh, That's great. Do they have discussions after? Yes, yes. They all meet in the restaurant afterwards to talk about it. So, and this is what's, and they're sneaking in docs, which is great for me. I love it. Um, it started out as features only, but he's been throwing in a doc here and there, and people are loving it. So he's getting more documentaries, and that's that's what it takes people like that to move people over to show them that they're not boring. They can be in totally interesting, totally enticing, and can make you feel good when you leave. And that's usually why people go to the theater. Yeah, exactly. Who wants to go to a, a bummer documentary on a Thursday night? I, Filmmaker <laughs> Magazine just just uh, announced uh, there's a headline about this being the golden age of documentaries. And I remember that being said like 20 years ago. So I love that the genre is going strong. And for all of the directors out there who are listening, I, w- I was once told this by, by an editor, and I want to share it because I really believe it, having made six of my own. It takes a lot of – directors of documentaries are courageous. Um, John Els used to, at UC Berkeley used to say, you're doing God's work, and he, he didn't mean it in a strict religious sense. But, you know, it, it, it's hard. It is hard just to be an artist and then to be able to raise the money, and then, you know, you're exhausted after finishing the film and you've got to market it. But I just want to, you know, stand with you, Carol, and just encourage – Everybody who's listening to keep, you know, keep on, keep it on. That's and you're it. doing something important. Exactly. And it'll benefit people for years to come. And you have no idea how many lives you can change with one documentary. It's wonderful. But speaking of that, you know, the biggest problem I have is um, editing trailers. Now, uh, that is a talent that is a separate talent than editing a film mm. in my opinion you know i look at <laughs> trailers and i say this is missing that's wrong they yeah, and it's upsetting to me because i know that is the money maker that trailer is the most important part of your fundraising so have you got any tips for editing trailers 
<laughs> yes, and, and, and fundraising trailers are, are different than theatrical trailers when the film is done, but I would say some of the things that apply to both are, <clears throat> number one, production values, meaning every, every shot should showcase high production values. Uh, you know, unless, unless there's a huge plot point, like, you know, a murder, somebody's firing a gun, never include shots that are shaky or poorly lit. In a trailer, you want to feature your best material, and, and audio is, is actually more important than, than video. Um, so don't include anything amateurs, amateurs that would lead funders to think you're not a professional. Music, um, very important. Uh, here's a couple do's and do nots. Do not use one piece of music as a bed throughout the entire uh, trailer. Think about using at least two pieces of music. Uh, usually about halfway through, there's going to be some shift in tone. <clears throat> Do use music intelligently for punctuation. <clears throat> so, for example, to transition from sorry, <clears throat> one scene to another, <clears throat> take music away because that makes a point, and then bring it back in. That makes emphasis. Avoid music with lyrics. Um, and for, usually for a fundraising trailer, it's okay to use music for which you don't currently have the, the rights. Um, narration in a trailer um, for documentaries, for fiction films, it's, all, it's often voiceover. But for documentaries, it's usually text cards. Um, and some of those text, text cards, um, you know, title cards should, should uh, proclaim the, 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 uh, the director's um, credentials. Um, of course, structure is important. Um, uh, it's it's that's a big topic. But I actually um, wanted to ask you, Carol. Uh, the the length of of trailers has of theatrical trailers has stayed about the same around two minutes. Fundraising trailers. What is your sense of say for a crowdfunding? Um, and we've done six together crowdfunding campaigns. What's your current advice on how long a trailer should be? Well, um, this is being footballed all around the field here. Um, right now, uh-huh. Indi- Indiegogo says 2.20, no longer uh-huh. than that for a funding trailer. Uh-huh. Now, okay. um, see, I come from the place where I'm, I would watch a four-minute trailer. If it tells me a story and totally engages me, and, um, and what I have always felt is that a good funding trailer can it's got to be under five minutes that's for sure but it could be three and a half minutes four minutes but because you need that time to engage me and really tell me the story that's all i care about that we fund stories in our in our grants and uh so i watch a trailer and i'll say oh my gosh there's 30 seconds went to credits at the beginning. This is a trailer. Get right. To, oh, yeah, that's, that's a big mistake. Good point. <laughs> where's right the it. story, you know? So yeah. that's all I'm, I'm looking at. Where's, what's the story? And sound, I'm with you. That's more important than audio in, in a lot of cases. I want good sound, yeah. and I want, um, I'll put up with uh, medium 
um, not poor, but sort of medium video, if the, if I understand that they probably got, had the camera in their pocket or they were, um, or it was an impossible shot to get and yet they got it or whatever. Because right. if it works and shows me a story and keeps me into the film, I want to stay in the film and not be distracted. I know that's a lot to ask, but that's what I want. Because you have to leave me wanting more. That's the whole thing. I want to see you fund that film. And that's how you get to the top of my grant. Yeah, yeah. On length, I have a slightly different opinion. Um, And this comes from my experience. Um, uh, Like many busy people, um, you know, email takes a big chunk of my day. And if I see uh, an email for a crowdfunding video, if I click on it and the video says one colon something, I'm likely to take the time to watch it. But if it's over two minutes and I'm feeling pressured and busy, I might leave it to watch later and I might never see it. Uh, so I, I, it's harder to cut something shorter, but I, I think it's, um, I think you get some people, get some people, busy people that you might have lost otherwise. Oh, you're so smart. So now, it, yes, because I'm watching it to, uh, you know, to get the story. But if you can tell a story in two minutes or thereabouts, then you really have a winner. Yeah. Yep. And and not the whole story, of course. We don't want to give away the ending for a no. fundraising trailer. Um, but do you yeah. do, do you think I think there's still fundraising trailers and then there's crowdfunding trailers and the crowdfunding you've mm, got to be yeah. the sharp guys. So you know when they send me a three or four minute trailer, I th- that's my job to watch it. Uh, I've even watched uh, ten minute trailers and liked it, uh, but then I'm looking for more. I think uh, so. I, so. It depends on what you want. So I I don't know. It seems somewhere I heard that you make a 10-minute trailer, and then you have to cut it down because some grants want five minutes, and then you've got your fundraising for 220 or two minutes or under. Um, so how do you handle all those needs when you talk to people about giving them a trailer? Yeah, it's a good question. So for a lot of um, grants, um, they want to see not just a short trailer. They want to see 20 minutes of footage that, because a trailer won't show if you actually have the scenes, say, to create a a character-driven story. So they want to see a 20-minute sample reel, and that's a a different beast. And that could be like three, you know, three scenes that that show three different plot points. For a crowdfunding uh, fundraising trailer, I really like to see the trailer bookended uh, by the filmmaker. So right away, I really want to see the filmmaker. I want to know who this person is. Do I like them? Do I resonate with them? Why do they care about this? And, and you can do that in 15 seconds. And then you have your trailer. And then at the end of that, here's a tip that I got from uh, Maury Wachowski, um, who's written books about, say, house funding parties. And, and that is to... Um, and this isn't a must, but it's a nice thing to, to introduce somebody from your film and ask them to explain why the film is important briefly, say. Um, so especially oh, for, yeah. So for a social, social issue documentary where you're, you know, you're trying to, to change something, uh, somebody who is say, I don't know, 
uh, going into poor places and teaching kids how to use cameras, like born into brothels, um, you know, have that, that person on screen and explain why they think the film is important. So, so you don't have to be the only one pitching your own film. Uh, so That's I like a very that good idea. idea. Yeah, I, yeah, I do too. That's brilliant. Well, actually, we're going to interview Maury next week. Did you know that? Oh, that's great. No, I didn't. That's awesome. Oh, that'll <laughs> be fun. Because I really love fundraising trailers. I mean, I love fundraising parties, and so now I'll talk to him about the trailer. I'll get him to repeat that because this is the time between now and, uh, well, I'd say Thanksgiving, a perfect time if you're, if you're working on a project to do a fundraising party because – uh, you fall, we've got summer and fall, and these are the times when people start to really open their hearts and their pocketbooks, and good time to know that you're going to be, need a tax deduction and to go to that funding party. Excellent. And, we, and what uh, you... we, edit, we edit trailers. We can usually do it in four days, sometimes five. Oh, um, Ooh, great. So, um, yeah, depending on how much footage you give us, so uh, keep that in mind. It is okay, a good time. Right. It is definitely a good time. And what's your next project? Have you got anything in mind? <laughs> for myself? For, to make yes. a feature documentary? <laughs> I'm just laughing because I feel like I have finally found my... I love making documentaries, but I feel like I've really found my groove, uh, which is helping filmmakers with structure. And it's something I love, and I love to go deep into that. So, so no, I don't, have a, I don't have a current personal film in mind, but I do know the kinds of films that I like to be part of. And, um, you know, they're all along the project of uplifting humanity, uh, as was the topic of the film I just finished, American Visionary, the story of Barbara Marks Hubbard, on the idea of, uh, you know, sort of consciously evolving and, um, seeing our crises, of which there are plenty, as evolutionary drivers. Um, so that's, wow. that's the short answer. But thank you for asking. Well, no, I think you're right. You Just look at what you can do by helping people get their films finished in the best way possible, winning awards, getting it out, t- teaching them how to get into the audience, get their film made for their audience. That's so important. People forget that. They're making the film for their reasons, they think, but they also have to direct it towards an audience and find that audience. And I know you do that as part of your work, right? You bring out who this is. Yes, yes. And, and, and you know, you helped me really dr- learn to drill down on that, um, you know, who – who is the person this film is being made for and what problem are you solving? And that's part of the reason that the tagline of my business is keeping your, your viewers glued to the screen, not keeping you glued to the screen, but keeping your viewers glued to the screen. So we're always, always cognizant of, of how is this coming across to the audience and, and who is your audience. And, and you've really helped, helped me clarify that. Oh, thank you so much. Well, this has been an extraordinary conversation, and the information is outstanding and will benefit a lot of filmmakers. Karen, I sincerely thank you. Thank you, Carol, and um, 
I'm bookending this with I love you and and thank you and uh, <laughs> uh, and oh, uh, very kind and you know th- thumbs up to everybody listening. Just okay. Keep on. You're getting there. Okay. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Claire. Okay. Karen, thank I you. have to let you know. I just, Karen, I have to let you know. I went ahead and and uh, went to your website and I signed up to get your free uh, PDF book. So um, I'm looking forward to it, and I just want to remind the listeners that uh, if you're interested as well in Karen's book, it's uh, it's on film editing, correct? Right, the film one that you were editing. talking about. Yes, film documentary editing. And uh, so once again, will you give your website address so that they know where to go to sign up for that? Yes, it's new, N-E-W, doc, D-O-C, editing.com, newdocediting.com. Thank Thank you, Thank you. Okay. Lots of love, Karen. Um, Thanks. Bye-bye now. Bye. Thank you. Be well, everyone. Be well, everyone. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. Carol and I sincerely thank you for all that you do as our listeners, for joining us on the show, for sending in ideas for topics and things that you would like to hear about, and also for the donations that you offer at FromTheHeartProductions.com. We urge you to continue to send us your ideas for more shows and also uh, send heartfelt thanks to everyone for all the good that has come from these many years that we've been doing these shows. And we'll see you next week at our next podcast with Maury Warshawski. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's david, R-A-I-K-L-E-N.com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.